welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking to Mr. Robot creator Sam Esmail about Season 2 of the USA series. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hello. I am such huge, 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 huge fans of you guys. Oh, thank um, you. I'm, I'm kind of gigging out right now. Oh, so, uh, we're super <laughs> excited to have a, you. Uh, I'm very excited to be on here. Well, that answers um, the question of whether or not you were mad at me about today's column. I am very <laughs> mad at you, Matt, but I love your criticisms, and I read every single uh, review where you trash our show. Uh, <laughs> <I don't>, I, <laughs> but, but I definitely don't take it personally, and I see where you're coming from, and it's and I and I'm glad we can talk about it because it's it's it, you you never you never can usually do this, so it's awesome. That's true. Usually, usually, usually it doesn't happen. But not mad for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to start us off, just going back to you know your early stages of planning for this season, can you talk about kind of the narrative themes that you wanted to bring out in this season? Well, you know, initially, the, the actually, I always knew that Elliot uh, was going to go to prison. Um, so when we talked about what that would look like in the second season, which I'm, I'm sure this is going to turn into a very interesting conversation uh, uh, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> um, um, we, when we talked about what that would look like, um, we started going into Elliot's storyline and Elliot's sort of where he where we left him emotionally which is this kind of crazy realization that it, he's seeing this other sort of alter ego um and he and this realization that maybe he's seriously mentally ill here um and you know in talking to consultants and like trying to figure out what are those initial instincts those initial reactions um it, there's a lot of self-harm um which is part of the reason why elliot he sort of chose to be in prison um even though he was arrested um he could have easily gotten off but he pled guilty and so um and then what was that what would that coping mechanism be and that's when we started talking about uh this sort of illusion that that he creates for himself um this sort of reprogramming that he does for himself um to essentially isolate himself and then go into this really introspective place of battling this condition that he has in this sort of amateurish, you know, best guess possible way. And so that's sort of the kickoff to the second season. It had nothing to do with the plot of um, the hack or the, uh, that was sort of the backdrop because we all knew that the hack, you know, from this is just starting off from the series, that wasn't going to be the thing that just revolutionized the world. You know, that, that, that wasn't realistic. There was going to be a lot more to it than that. And we were going to experience the hangover before uh, anything else kind of came, came out of it. Um, so this was an opportunity to launch Elliot into this internal battle that he's going to have with Mr. Robot. Another thing that's been different about this season has been the secondary characters getting a lot more airtime. Well, so, the, so I, I should say, because I was, I was really fixating on Elliot, what mm-hmm. I should say is that you know, one of the reasons why I turned this into a TV show, because the film, in the feature version, Elliot was in every scene. That there was Every scene was Elliot. It was Elliot all day long, right? That was the, oh, yeah. the half-hour drama Matt always talks about. <laughs> 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 going up, 
television show that ever got made, right? That was the movie. That was like the maybe it could have been the most brilliant movie ever made. But that was the that was the movie. And when what happened, what made me turn it into a TV show is when I started writing it. I started drifting off into these other characters. I started loving Darlene. I started loving Angela. I started loving Terrell. I started loving all the other possibilities that these you know that these people could take the story into. So I was sort of hamstrung in the first season because I was like, well. This is really the only first act. I need this thing to happen. I need this plot, whatever the hack thing to happen. Because for me, plot is always an excuse to explore characters and worlds. Because who cares? The plot is the same plot that we ever see in basically every movie and TV show. You kind of know the rhythms of every plot. But it's how we tell that story, what choices these characters can make. So that's, that's when, when, we, when we got into the second season and Elliot sort of goes into this introspective mode. I was like, Wow. Great. I mean, this is like the biggest selling point that we had in the writers' room was that now we can really dive deep into all the other characters that we really couldn't get into in the first season. Why did you make the decision to um, delay the revelation of the real nature of Mr. Robot until late in the first season? And why did you wait to confirm that Elliot was was in fact behind bars in the second season? Like, why didn't you just let us in on that from the beginning and do it a different way? Yeah, so that that was a that was a that was actually we talked about that. We said, okay, well, let's just you know we'll tell the audience, right? Um, and then and then he'll he'll be in prison, and then he'll um, sort of imagine it away and go into his reprogramming mind, similar to what we did in the first in the pilot. What I wrote in the pilot, you know, he we see E Corp, but no, he sees it as Evil Corp. He hears it as Evil Corp. Um, so you know that was on the table, and then someone was like. That prob- that someone's probably mean. Then someone was like, you know, <laughs> what if we didn't tell the audience? Okay, all right. Well, what does that mean? What what do we get out of that? Is there some kind of added value to that? If not, we shouldn't do it, you know. And I started looking at it as well. If we didn't do it, but we don't cheat, if we start, you know, hey, hinting something's going to be off here. I mean, we're not going to hide it that well. I mean, I'm not saying we're Elliot's in back in his apartment. He's walking the streets and going all safe and all, all along this was in prison. No, we no. it has to be, you can't, it's got to be real. It's got to be like, no, there's something a little off. We're hinting at it. We're really in his coping mechanism, what Elliot would do, but the audience is going to sense it and it's going to maybe predict it, maybe not. I mean, I didn't really know, but I didn't really care either. Because what was interesting to me about it is I looked at it as a scene, like if you take like a, any scene, the two characters, one of them loves the other. It's more interesting, right, for that person to hate that person on the surface, but subtextually you feel, oh, well, that person actually loves them. And you sense that maybe, or maybe you don't, and then you're surprised when that comes out. Either way, there's another layer of, of engagement. We have this opportunity with, a, with our character, who's obviously narrating to us, considers us a friend, was betrayed, felt betrayed, I should say, by us in the first season. What if he feels like, you know, well, I'm going you know, to lie back. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to withhold from you, and I'm not going to tell you everything. And now, now we're developing this weird relationship with the audience that... Elliot is whether he's whether you're whether you saw the prison coming or not is almost not the point. The point is is that now you're having this 
actual subtextual relationship with him that you didn't have in the first season. And then to also add that now under the unreliable narrator device, now we're putting on the table, well, no, not only do, do we see through his eyes, but he could also be lying to you. Not, not that he's just not aware of things, but he could out and out lie to you. Now that's another storytelling device that we can throw in. Um, and Matt, I really hope that you ask that we go down this road a little bit. Well, you know, you, I, uh, sure. I mean, I must say what, is, what an unusual situation it is to, uh, to be talking to you. Um, can I just start by saying, um, contrary to what people ask me on Twitter like every day, I don't hate Mr. Robot. I like it. <laughs> I really, really like it. And, and, you know, and I've said this, like James Agee said this about the Marx Brothers, like the worst thing that you could make would be more interesting than the, be than the best of what other people would make. Like I'm on board all the way to the end. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're like a musician where even if I don't like every one of your songs, I'm going to go see you live. I just – there were certain things as a viewer that, uh, that didn't work for me. And I guess one of the things was this thing you were just talking about where I guess what threw me was I was not clear on how how much of a tip off you were giving us like how much how closely held is this secret are we supposed to not know are we supposed to be in doubt that was what I didn't like about it it wasn't the idea that he's looking at reality and seeing something other than reality it was the execution that threw me and then well, if I can you. ask uh, on yeah, in ahead. addition to that I was wondering what the calculus was in terms of figuring out like when you were going to reveal that he was actually in prison, because it obviously that happened a few episodes in. And I was just curious, like, did you think about revealing it earlier? And then you decided for whatever reason you wanted to wait. H how did that all work in your mind? Well, we knew that we wanted Elliot to get to a place. The battle between what, what Elliot's motivation was, was pretty very, very, very clear in the beginning, which is he wanted to get rid of Mr. Robot. He wanted to cure himself of this. Right. He wasn't going to do that, obviously, in this in, in this season, at least. So. Um, so the point in which he was going to get to that level where he's going to make peace with the fact that he exists, he's a part of him, and he's not going to get rid of him, but maybe he can live with him. That was the point where we thought, okay, he doesn't need to be in isolation anymore. And that's the intersection. So we kind of organically, when we mapped out the season, and this included all the other storylines and all the other characters and how they intersected with each other, that's what determined the length of um, of, of, of the prison reveal. But at the same time, you know, in a weird way, because obviously the reaction was, I'm trying to get one over on everyone. And, you know, it's weird because I didn't think we would get that because in the first season, I think everyone kind of knew and, it, and I was very, very open and honest about, well, you know, look, guys, you, you kind of knew from the beginning and we were telegraphing it and we undercut it so much. That was the other thing. Like I under, I mean, I, again, I could have really lied and um, you would have never guessed um, but I really wanted to hint at it, much like, again, in, in a scene with two characters where there's that subtext, but we're not quite telling you exactly what's going on, but you can sense it and you can feel it. That was sort of the effect we were going for. We never had it as some big shocker that was going to you know, uh, throw people completely off like, like it did. I forget the filmmaker that I'm paraphrasing, Matt, who's paraphrasing a filmmaker, um, who said that um, you know, you're trying to train the, the audience to how to watch. Oh, yeah, a show, show or a movie yeah. it teaches you how to watch it. Exactly. And yeah. so we thought we did that in the first season. I will say, parenthetically, I did appreciate that, like, whether we quibble or not over the length of the reveal of the real identity of Mr. Robot, I really like the fact that you bring in the acoustic version of Where Is My Mind from Fight Club <laughs> once you've done it. Because that to me, like, I couldn't be, like, I couldn't be mad at the show for, quote, unquote, wasting my time, which I think is a ridiculous thing to say if you're watching a television show, like, you're either in it or you're not. 
but that 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 music cue, and there were some other touches like that where I could see you kind of winking, like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. So you obviously weren't trying to hide this from viewers, you know, as you're saying, yeah. it wasn't supposed to be some big twist or reveal. Well, and, can I just can I? Oh just no, say, go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Just I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I I'll just say this in the same way that. You're not like you know. You're not hiding that Meg Ryan has a thing for Billy Crystal in um, When Harry Met Sally. They're compl- They're bickering and they hate each other, but you kind of know that they like each right. other. Right. You, you know what I mean? There's a again. It's just in, in any of those scenes. Where it's just meant to be the subtext of that scene. Anyway, go ahead. But so I mean, the conversation obviously did kind of become about you know what is what is really happening, and I imagine that can be frustrating in a way when it becomes too focused on this element where you're not you're you're wanting that is just the subtext as you're saying and has this made you less inclined to do this kind of thing going forward just because of how much we live in this kind of reddit culture where people dissect everything to this well degree well, that I'd- yeah, well, I'll, I'll respond by saying I, that I don't mind. I don't mind that people dissect. And like I said, when they figured it uh, I mean, it was really quick. It was like the first episode. <laughs> and, I remember, <laughs> and I remember everyone was like bummed out. I think because we were still shooting and everybody on set was like, oh, shit. Like, we're, we're, this is fucked up. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I was kind of like, we didn't lie. That's great. They figured, I mean, they figured it out, man. They had it down to the, I think somebody at Vulture actually just like really kind of hit a home run on it. (laughs) And I'm like, well, that's awesome. That means we didn't lie. That means like we actually did our job to think that people could decrypt our show. And because we do a good job, I think, of adding details and adding layers and adding symbolism, which I think is, that to me is what cinema is really great at. That to me is what filmmaking is really, is to visually sort of tell this story. The fact that people could read that that quickly, I was impressed by myself. You know, well, I was I was like, wow. I mean, we did a really great. Thing. I never really took it as a slight. See, to me, I know that people complain about it. I don't think I, I'm kind of trained to read the note behind the note. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the problem. If that was what they were really having issues with, maybe I'm wrong. Because I, I, and again, I know you guys did a whole pod. I know you did a whole show about twists and whether you like twists or whether you don't. <laughs> but is this weird for you guys for me to know your show so well? Not I, at I, all. I okay. Okay. No, if anything, it's, nice pro- to have it's, a fan. It, it's proof that the words don't go out into the ether and right. never to be seen or heard from again. You know. <laughs> I mean, I guess I, you know. In my opinion, I, I, I can't I can't take the storing storytelling device of reveals away. I think they're so interesting and so impactful. And if you execute it well, it really works. I think our show is is, is really a, a big mystery tale, and that we're unraveling it layer by layer. So I don't know if I would take that away. I, you know, I, I, so I guess my answer would be no. Can I ask you some kind of super yeah. geeky questions about? Uh, the direction of the show. Um, why is it that when you show violence, often extremely brutal violence, you show it from a distance? I think it's more brutal that way. Hmm. You know, there's this whole essay. I don't know if it's real or not. It's called Chaos Cinema. I don't know if you've heard of it. Action As a matter films, of fact, I, I published that. No, you did not. <laughs> yeah, I did. did you? At Press Play. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, that I did not know. I'm being honest about <laughs> it's that. It's a but, small world. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, I, I don't... Uh, when I watch an action film... I generally zone out at the action sequences. I don't understand what's going on. Everything's in this tight, shaky. Well, you know, I don't. Well, I don't know why I'm regurgitating this all to you. <laughs> you, you, make, you make you make the point very well in that. For me, and the classic action films, and, and I think Spielberg probably 
is one of the best you know, at directing action sequences. It's those wide shots. It's where you know what's going on. And it, it becomes more real and then therefore more brutal. It really hits you more. I remember when we did the, uh, uh, the Terrell scene where he's punching the homeless guy in the, in the first season. And we got tight coverage and all that, and that's, that was the instinct, and we did all that. And, I, and I, once again, I'm watching it in the other bay, and I just completely zoned out because I had no idea what was going on. And it's really desensitizing. The, but when you sit in that wide shot and you see this guy just taking it as he's punching him in the face, it really disturbed me. And, I, you know, and for me, it's just a much more powerful method. Related to that, when you shoot a scene like that or when you do a long, long take, and you've done a number of very long, like true detective long takes on this show, do you leave yourself an option in case it doesn't work? Do you have like a second camera shooting stuff or are you just like, nope, this is how we're doing it. Let's hope it works, guys. You know, it sucks because in TV you really should shoot two cameras uh, every single time. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the thing you do because you have to work so fast. I really don't like doing that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm really into composing the shot, making sure it looks right. I mean, and it's all about the details, and it's not just the composition, it's the production design, all that. And if I have to worry about that with two different angles, it really drives me up the wall. But when we do those oneers, we can't shoot coverage because what are you going to shoot coverage of if the oneer is going is taking Angela from the elevator? into a hallway which then goes into the fbi and then into the bathroom i mean i don't even know how to be like i intentionally block it in a certain way so i know that i have no other option that this is the shot um and you know and we just have to do it until we get it right Hmm. can we talk about angela a little bit because her her scenes were probably my favorite this season just i mean both in terms of like you have that emotional karaoke scene but you also have that episode where she's doing the hack that just like set my heart racing and you know had you always envisioned this kind of role for her or no this is the great thing about tv is that when you discover certain um strengths in an actor you can then begin to exploit them you know in in really fun ways what happened was i I was was shooting the the season finale last year the, the shoe store scene and um you know and she says that line about the pradas and and i'm like you know watching this scene and I'm watching it in the other bay but I'm, even on set I remember I'm like watching it and I'm like I don't know is she is she enjoying this or is she embarrassed is she shameful about how she treated this poor guy or is she actually getting off on it I actually thought Portia has this weird uncanny ability to be right there in the middle and it, and it reminded me of mm-hmm. do you ever see the movie Jackie Brown yep mm-hmm. yep the genius of that movie is you have no idea which side she's playing the entire time. Huh. And you're like kind of going back and forth. I mean, I didn't know. I was like, what the hell is she is she working with? Is she working with Sam Jackson? Is she working with Robert Force? And it and the, the way Pam Grimm plays it the whole time is fascinating. And I just found that quality in Portia. So when we went into the second season, I was like, you know what, Portia, we're gonna just do back go the, go this back do this back and forth thing and it's gonna be incredible and she just has that face i i don't i don't i couldn't ex- articulate exactly what it is but it really she was the one that spoke to me and, and kind of guided what the journey of her character was going to be this season that's oh. interesting that you that you put it that way when you're talking about her character because a lot of times when i interview writers or filmmakers or showrunners um it seems like they fall into two camps. They're the ones who work kind of intuitively with the characters, and there are others where they kind of know in a general way where everybody's going to end up. 
and then they're looking for psychologically consistent things to happen at each point along the way to lead them to that destination, provided that they, you know, the show long, lasts long enough for them to get there. But you just you just said something very interesting, which is that you didn't know how to read this character who is your character. And I know right. that's partly, a, a, you know, probably due to the performance, but how intuitive are you when it comes to understanding your characters like you know you hear you hear it said of characters oh they don't know why they do things which i think is a compliment but it sounds like sometimes you don't know either in the moment no i don't well here's the thing i did know on the page and then in the scene i said i i, I don't know i on the page i you know i think i in that scene i was like no she should be shameful i mean she just she blurted this thing out it was like an uh, uh whatever an impulse and um, and that guy walks away, and she should be shameful. I mean, she this is she's now working at the company that uh, that was you know that was responsible for her mom's death. This is all she can't be inhuman. She can't be cold about this. And I also knew that it wasn't that right. I also knew I didn't want that. I didn't want that person because I thought that was too cartoonish. What Portia did was somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. and that I didn't know. And that was nuanced, and that was real, and that was human. That was the. I'm the nice girl, but I'm tempted by this, and that's that's who I am. I'm I'm that that gray area. Have you ever written a character doing a particular action or making a particular decision, and then as you're about to commit it to paper or as you're about to commit it to video, you go, no, 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 they wouldn't all, all, do this all the time, and it, it and it really comes from it, do, it. Doesn't necessarily always come from the actor, right? It sometimes just comes from some, something as simple as the blocking. Like, I'll have a, a character get up and go over there because, you know, they have to go over there to get the gun. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know a specific example, but I'm just, just giving you a random one. Like, you know, they're going over there to get the gun. And then I'm like, but they would never get up in this moment in this scene. Well, maybe they should get up in the beginning of the scene. Well, no, they wouldn't get up then either. Well, maybe at the end. And then I realized they shouldn't get the gun. Look, I always, I'm never stringent about, where we we solidify things in the writer's room because I, I feel like that's always a dangerous mistake. You know, the things that happen on set, the things that happen in production, and the things that happen with the actors and then the blocking and then where the camera's going to go, all kind of service to, to inform you of where, you know, what feels authentic because we always tend to just grab it. And that, I kind of feel like that's that's my only job is to sort of gravitate to where the authentic moment is going to be at any given time, you know? And this is sometimes really hard to do, when, especially when that will have ripple effects, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then you just have to do it and you have to commit to it. Right. I wanted to ask about um, the music in the show, um, especially the second season, which, you know, I, I think they're great musical choices, but I also think that they're very carefully chosen. So I was wondering if you could talk about what that process is, if you're, you know, writing things into each episode as you go and then just hoping you can get the rights or how do you go about that so so music is uh, you know it's the soul it to me is the soul it's you know the thing about i think filmmaking and the thing about um movies television shows any motion picture medium whatever whatever platform or whatever it's all for me the the biggest thing it's not about the plot or it's not about the story and sometimes it's not even about the characters, but it's more than anything. And all, everything kind of services is it's really about tone. It's really about a vibe or an emotion or a state of mind or whatever that you're trying to put your audience into. And once you get them in there, then I feel like then you can do things with characters that are interesting. Then you can do things with plot. And everything. But really, you really have to establish that, which is one of the reasons why with the, I never wanted an opening theme song. 
Because I'm like, every episode is going to have a different feeling. I want to start, I want to be able to control how we kick off this story in this episode. And I want and that could be, that could vary very much tonally from episode to episode. And, you know, a theme song to me will just kind of lay down the gauntlet of this is what, this is how this episode is going to feel at its start. And I never wanted that. So with music, music is the thing that really, to me, is like the soul of what that tone could be. Um, and sometimes I do write into it in the script. Um, I, I just think that's always like a best guess because how the hell do I know until I see it come together in the edit bay? And that's honestly where everything sort of comes together. It's usually me and the editor, we're sitting there and we're going through, I mean, you know, we're going through a fuckload of songs per, you know, per choice. We do not make song choices lightly. So, and, and, you know, and they, and they uh, honestly, and sometimes it's about silence or sometimes it's about cutting off the song at the right moment. I mean, just sound in general is such an important ingredient in the show. And because, because I believe it really affects tone. Have you had any particular moments this season that were your favorites? Music moments? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> there have been so many good ones. but I mean, I love craft works. But I, I got to yeah. be honest with you. I, I, love, um, I love the karaoke scene. I mean, just because it did everything. It combined the tone and the music with just this great, great, great performance by Portia. You can't get better than that. I mean, that's like, you know, everything coming together in a beautiful way. And then it was also intercut with the hack. Because, um, you know, it wasn't written that way, right? So, you know, she did her karaoke. That was a scene. And we cut and we go to the hack. And that was a scene. And we put fine score and... And I was like, you know, again, and actually, this is a good story because, like, we were going through a litany of songs and, you know, scores and Mac scores. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what that hack would look like. I'm like, you know, why don't you just put Porsche's song underneath it? I wasn't going to intercut it. I was just going to, like, well, maybe we just pre-lap it a little bit. And, you know, as we finish Porsche, we go into the hack and we hear that a little bit of that song. And then I realized... Oh no! This this I mean we did that a little bit and it kind of worked and we're like okay let's move on. Kept going through cut after cut, the editors cut, directors cut, whatever. And then we went back at the end and we're like we got to recut this whole thing. That's the score of the scene, you know. And it was and it was and it wasn't fast and driving like a hacking scene might be, but it was for whatever reason it was perfect. And because I can't explain it is the reason why I probably love it. Oh, I was curious too in the last the second to last episode. You used a bunch of songs from Back to the Future, and yeah. they were not the obvious, like, <laughs> power of love. Like, you telegraphed immediately what it was. But to anybody who uh, watched that movie a million times or had the soundtrack, <laughs> not referring to myself, of course, um, <laughs> it immediately no. jumped out at you. So I'm, I'm wondering, is there a reason for that? Or were you trying to telegraph something to us? Or why were those songs chosen? Well, for whatever reason, and honestly, a lot of these decisions... Because a, a lot of people, I mean, obviously we have detailed, meticulous choices, right? And um, and there are, there are certain reasons and and, 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 and and logical explanations as to why we did this and that and whatever, and why we put the red phone into the thing. Um, but the driving force of a lot of this is, does it feel right? Is this the right? Are we getting the right tone out of this? And maybe we think about why. Why? Well, why does it feel right? In that episode, I've, and I've always, there's something weird about, because I knew this was the White Rose episode, right? This is like a huge White Rose moment. And obviously White Rose has a thing about time. And in that episode, we, I think the first song we threw in was uh, Night Train in the, in the car, in the van. 
and then we got out of it and then at the and then you know we moved on and we did you know we cut other scenes whatever it was and then we got to the end and we're with Terrell and I think someone had put some um, some other song in there and you know it wasn't really working so we were going through the list and we did Earth Angel and then that's when it was like wait a minute there's something about this that feels right and then we went back and we put in Davy Crockett and then we and then the, <laughs> you know and then the time bomb in the uh, in the cab and then we were like wait a minute, we're just putting Back to the Future songs in here. I'm like, yeah, it feels right. And I think it's just because like that White Rose scene, the Angered in the Middle, which I knew should not have music, but I knew it should be surrounded by it. It should be surrounded by something that, that was kind of referencing it, but not directly. And it, that's kind of how it went, all went down, and it just felt right. I, okay, okay, all right. So I'm going to get really, like, as geeky as I've ever gotten with anybody here. I have a theory about this. Yes, please. Okay, Back to the Can't Future. Wait. Back to the Future tells the same story three times across different time periods, and the characters basically we meet the same characters over and over in different guises. That's it's the Hall of Mirrors, and the second film in particular. Like I, th- I thought about the climax of that film, which is Marty McFly is trying to sneak into the dance from the end of the first film, and avoid being seen by Marty McFly. Everything's going to fall apart if he gets seen by basically a version of himself. And you've got this—you've got this show that's filled with people who have more than one incarnation. You've got, you know, White Rose has two. Elliot—I don't even know how many Elliot has. I'm probably one of his invisible friends by this point. <laughs> and, and you know, and then you've got Christian Slater's character is Mr. Robot, but he's also Elliot's father. It just seemed to make sense to me that somehow you would be gravitating towards Back to the Future, which is about you know continually revisiting the same scenario over and over and trying to change the future. Well, and I also thought in the coda, the last thing that Leon says is, do you have the time? Like, I thought something's, that wasn't by accident, but maybe it was. I don't know. Uh, no, the, this is, it was not by accident. It's a, it's a great theory. And yeah, it's a great theory. <laughs> great theory. Cool theory, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Very deep, Matt. Very deep. <laughs> you know, you've talked about how the Arab Spring has kind of inspired the show a bit in terms of a theme of revolution. And, you know, this season we see the revolution kind of not working out. But it's also a very American story. And it's reflective of kind of feeling like an outsider. And how much of that is inspired by your own background as an immigrant in America? And, you know, you have Rami Malek as well, your star of the show. And one of the members of F Society, Trenton, who's an Iranian-American, you know, are you are you trying to draw out these types of stories as well in terms of that kind of mood of the show in terms of how these characters feel like outsiders, whether they're immigrants or otherwise. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Look, the thing about it is when I made those choices and I made those choices, um, some of them in the screenplay, some of them in casting um, and then, which then inspired certain character choices. um, It was never to talk about it. You know, it, it, we, you know, Elliot is obviously of a, a, a mixed race, right? He's, mm-hmm. uh, his mother and father, you know, different ethnicities, and but we do not talk about it. We, you know, Tretton, we kind of, you know, dip our toe into it, but we do not talk about it. We let it just inform inform it. Because when, when I wrote Elliot, I didn't know, right? Um, I didn't know who it was going to be, and it didn't really matter to me, you know, um, and. And then when I cast Rami, who was obviously brilliant and perfect for the part, um, and I was like, do, how do I 
how do I reconcile his ethnicity? You know, he's Egyptian, I'm Egyptian. Like, um, I mean, is there something here? Should I be diving into that? And then I oddly felt like there's some reverse racism going on here. Wait a minute. I, I can't cast Rami unless I, like, address the fact that he's Egyptian in some way. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want that to now all of a sudden dictate anything about the character that I wouldn't have dictated, that wouldn't have happened if it had to cast uh, someone white. But I couldn't just ignore it either, So mm-hmm. right? Because like, there, there, it, it needed to inform who he was. And then that's when it grew out, this sort of what you were saying, this outcaster status or this sort of outcast look about him. Like that, that then felt intri- like intrinsic to what, how Rami plays Elliot and how I maybe potentially I wrote Elliot and it all becomes this more subconscious choice as opposed to you know like even when I wrote the Trenton character and I did wrote her in as Iranian American I didn't do that because I wanted to explore Iranian Americans I did that because when I was thinking about who which what kind of people would join this group Mm-hmm. Like, you know, from all walks of life, I'm like, well, and I'm also rep- kind of reflecting on my own reality, right? My own circle of friends. Um, this type of person felt that way, that felt right to be in this group. And so it all sort of came from this really, uh, I, uh, you know, really genuine place of what organically makes sense, what informs this cl- character that I'm trying to write or trying to come across uh, in the best way without it being about like, okay, here are these, you know, here are the this really diverse cast. Right. I mean, I, and I think, honestly, I think that's really important because one of, one of the things that I, I get worried about with this diversity thing that's going on right now, I don't want people to look at it as homework. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't want people totally. to, to write something and say, well, now we've got to make them black and we got to make And that's kind of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really sad. I think have a genuine curiosity about that. Have a genuine curiosity about what would it mean to have an Indian American in this part, in this character. That's going to change how you write the character. And and if you have that genuine curiosity, that to me is when you make that choice. And maybe the, the solution to, I don't know if there is a solution, but the solution is why don't we have more genuine curiosity? Because, man, aren't those stories amazing? I can rattle off Master of None and uh, you know, Land and all these amazing shows where you're, we're not seeing terribly like very different stories than what we've seen prior but because you've now taken this different perspective it's totally new and original and unique and you know if no one else wants to tap into that i mean you know i think it's like you know it's gold right there it's a gold mine that's really kind of untapped right now you get caught in a double bind though too because you know i i'm not going to say i'm not going to give you too many details because i don't want to drag that out but there's a, a filmmaker once who's asian american made a movie and he cast it with white actors because he said if I cast Asian Americans in this part suddenly the movie's not what I want it to be about it's about the condition of being Asian American and he felt like it would limit it but then he also later kind of hated himself for having made that choice it's like that's like he felt like he was buying into the idea that the white experience is somehow more universal you know is Mr. Robot now the show about the Egyptian American you know I, I, I don't think that's true I really don't think that's I don't true think so anymore. At all, no. I mean, and and it's part of the reason why I did avoid making it about that. You know, I don't feel like you have to talk about it. You again and let it inform it, but you don't have to make it about it necessarily. You know. Yeah, I think it it works exactly as you were saying on this kind of subconscious level. That yeah, and otherwise it might make it this a more political story politicized story and I don't know it just it's better to keep it subtle I think 
When your star dedicated his Emmy to the Elliots, how, what was the phrase he used? The Elliots of the world? Yeah. 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 Well, how did you take that? To, what did you take that to mean? Because I didn't. I, I, I took it to mean more like a general, particular type of young urban man who's maybe not represented on screen. That maybe is not so much about that ethnicity, uh, but more about a vibe or a lifestyle. I think it's about people who feel a little alienated, who feel a little lonely, who feel they have some social anxiety, who can't really talk to people. You know. Um, He's, by the way, Rami's not anything like that, but I, th- <laughs> but he does play a character uh, that I think speaks to a lot of people like that. Um, you know, I'm like that. You know, I'll be honest with you. I, th- a lot of that, in, uh, you know, is what 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 I wanted to write about in, in, with the character, and um, I think that triggered a lot of people. And I think Rami can sense that. I think that's that's where the connection is. Yeah, I don't think it's just young males. I think it's anybody who who kind of has that uh, alienation. What kind of comments do you get from from fans of the show about that specific thing about feeling represented? What do they say? It's it's you know it's it's really interesting. Like, I, well, obviously, I get I get a lot of like, I want to be a hacker, and you know, this you're talking about me, and like, I don't ever go out, and you know, you know that kind of stuff, <laughs> which is great. Um, and then there's the other group where a lot of people who have real serious issues with social anxiety. I mean. People can say social anxiety and, you know, like, because they can't, you know, whatever. They say stupid things at a party. But I don't think that's what most people mean when they say they have serious issues with social anxiety. No. It means they, they, they can't function in social settings without, you know, without really being terrified or without panicking. Um, and, and so they isolate themselves. And then, they, and then there's that double effect of then feeling incredibly lonely. And then they feel like it's their fault. And then there's all this shame that goes into it. Um, those are the people that really, when they write to me and talk to me about the show, I can sit here and tell you that I intended for all this to happen and that I'm changing lives and all that. But I, di- I didn't know that. I didn't know. I was just talking about sort of my experience and putting a lot of that into the character of Elliot. And when I get that kind of reaction, it, I mean, it's obviously incredibly moving. How much of your of the press and and conversation about the show as it's airing do you pay attention to? I mean, obviously, All I guess of you've been listening I've read to us. every article of yours, Jen. <laughs> 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 and by the way, can I just say something? Like, um, I've read criticism since I was a kid. Um, I used to want to be a critic. Um, I think it's an awesome job. You get to watch all this stuff and then write about it and analyze it and give insight into it. That, that that's a an amazing job. I was just, I was terrible at it. So, um, I respect the field. I respect the craft. Um, and so when I read criticism of the show, um, sure. I'm not, look, I'm not inhuman in the moment. I'm like, okay, that I'm really hurt and, you know, and I'm really upset and it hurts my feelings and all of that. Right. But then I get up the next day and I'm like, you know, I can read it and be like, well, wait a minute. I disagree with that person. I disagree (laughs) with this. I disagree with that point. And I'm not I'm not being. Oh, I can see that point. I see. I see where he's coming from there. Obviously, there are there are bad critics, right? Mm -hmm. There are bad critics that just write crappy stuff and, you know, clickbaity headlines and all of that. And I kind of just ignore that, you know, because they. It feels like they just want to make a name for themselves or whatever it is. But then there are the top shelf critics, like you guys, like Seppenwall. You know, you know, I've talked to Seppenwall several times. Like, um, these guys, even though they can be critical of the show or critical of me personally, to, to, to some extent, it's like the team of rivals thing. It can only make me better. It can only challenge me to kind of come back. 
um, it's, you know, it's that Sorkin quote. Uh, you, you don't surround your, yourself with smart people who agree with you. You surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. I think it's easy to forget when you're reading a critic um, every single week or multiple times a week that um, I think most of us who do this job and doing it for a long time understand that this is basically a parasitic profession. I don't mean in the sense that we're like evil blood-sucking creatures, but like we couldn't exist if we didn't have somebody to analyze. And I'm always conscious right. of that. So my point of view, whether I like or don't like a particular thing that you do, my point of view is always that of an appreciator. Like I just like to be in the world that you create, you know? Yeah. And like the, the highest yeah. compliment I can pay to a filmmaker is say that watching their work is like having somebody else's dream. And I definitely feel that way when I'm watching Mr. Robot. Oh, thanks. But, you know, can I just say, can I just say something? Like all three of you guys have watched the season. We took a lot of risks, right? We kind of knew this was going to come. We kind of knew not everybody was going to love all the wacky things we were going to do, you know? Um, and that's just part of, that's the price, right? That's the price of what you do when you, when you take a risk. You may fall flat on your face. You may swing and miss. And I think that's okay. I think that's okay because, because when you read good criticism, and I really mean this, they understand that. Well, also, I could be wrong. You know, five years from now, I might watch season <laughs> well, yeah. two again and go, oh, boy, did I get that wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Well, I think there's a public perception, too, that critics, like, they want to not like things. And, you know, that could not be further from the that's truth. I mean, completely ridiculous. I, I always, I, yeah, I, I always I, go into I, things I wanting that. to like them. I, I think that's so stupid. I know that people have been saying there are conspiracy theories about, like, get the critics getting paid, like this whole Suicide Squad thing where people were getting paid to, to shit on the movie. And, um, you, know, that, that, <laughs> you know, but honestly, those, those are just, like, really, you know hurt fanboys i think i i don't know i don't i don't really i don't really pay attention to that because clearly i i don't know what's in that for you guys you know what i mean I, again there are some of those that will you, and i'm sure you guys would admit to this or agree to this there's some out there that will just write provocative stuff to get attention but sure. i would say most most of the time that's not the case and now that you've you know you've done a whole season where you've been super involved on every level. You know, you were directing every episode, you're writing. Is that something that you want to do again, just given how I'm sure I'm sure that was a lot of work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you know, in a weird way, look, I never wanted, I never, I don't consider myself a very good writer. I consider myself okay. I don't consider myself great. Like, you know, there's Woody Allen, Aaron Sorkin, there's Quentin Tarantino. I don't, I'm not, I'm not ever going to be in that on that level but I, I do consider myself a good filmmaker that's all i wanted to do i never wanted to be a writer i just wanted mm -hmm. to direct um and then i was reading stuff that i didn't love so i was like well let me just write the stuff that i want to direct because i couldn't uh i was very specific and i really couldn't work with other writers so i ended up just that's how i started writing um so the directing all the episodes was not was not the part that i was i that you know look i didn't i barely slept it was exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I worked every day. I was editing on the weekends. I was shooting every, you know, every, uh, every day during the week. But it streamlined everything in a way that, that did not happen in the first season. And I can feel it. I mean, I know that maybe, maybe it's minor to everyone else. But I know that it is more of a visual cohesion in the second season, first season. And that's not to knock any of the great directors that worked on the first season because they were great. 
but it's just how do you how do you do a, 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 how do you let, stay keep up that level of cohesion without having like that especially when you're a show this specific and I do have the this sort of specific vision of the show without being there every day and without sort of streamlining the creative choices and it's all about standing there in the middle and saying yes to that red dress no to Rami wanting to add a line you know what I mean yes you know yes to the production designer on the couch like it's all about those little choices and it it just makes for a more cohesive experience in terms of the writing I've embraced my writer's room in a, in a way uh, second season I didn't really do in the first season because I had never worked with other writers before and I plan to just kind of keep doing that in the third season um, but the filmmaking aspect of it I think I think is going to stay the same and I'll probably you know continue directing all the episodes do you ever feel like you need a break from being inside Elliot's head? Every day, Matt, every day. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to um, – the, the world is so layered and so cryptic. Um, and, and, you know, look, and, and that's why when I read reviews about, well, this is too opaque and I don't know what's going on, um, I get it. I to- to- totally get it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if I'm going to be honest with how Elliot sees the world, I keep going back to that. I mean, that's my only metric and my, and my judgment. It's the same thing I would say about directing. Do I get tired? Definitely. But it's just, at the same time, it exhilarates me. Do you have a sense of how, how many seasons you need to tell the story that you want to tell? I think you've said in other interviews that you imagine it going to maybe four or five seasons. But do you have a sense of that at this point? I think it's still, f- I think it's maybe five. I'll say five. I've <laughs> upgraded from four or five to maybe five. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of season three, have you, what, where are you at in that process? We start the writer's room in two weeks. Oh my um, gosh. I'm, yeah, it's crazy. It's I, fast... I, I, I literally did the, the mix on, on, uh, on Monday, the day after the Emmys. And for this, this week's wow. uh, finale, and so um, or I finalized the mix, I should say. So, and then in two weeks, so I don't, I don't really, I don't really get a break from. Are, are you taking a vacation or anything? I am. I'm going to. I'm going away. I'm a big Bermuda Triangle conspiracy theorist. So I'm going to Bermuda this week. <laughs> I love that. Oh, nice. <laughs> and just quickly, in terms of season three, you know, is there anything you can tell us about what? vision you have <laughs> Tyrell dead or alive <laughs> dead or alive <laughs> well Tyrell was alive I will confirm Tyrell's alive okay um, yeah 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 I didn't know if that was a question mark uh, by the end of the I guess it was to some people but yeah well I thought yeah, I, thought I think the some fact people didn't know Mr. Robot was flickering and he wasn't I thought that was I thought that said that he that was actually Tyrell yeah and and the fact that Tyrell talks to Angela in that scene afterwards right um, right um well, here's what I'd say. You know, I look at. Uh, I always look at every season as a, a stages of of Elliot's sort of evolution, right? And so the first season season is this sort of naive Elliot who kind of you know goes down the rabbit hole and um, ha- has a shocking realization about himself. By the end of the season, the second season is this like all out battle uh, with with himself and you know, uh, aka Mr. Robot, and 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 trying to battle this realization away, basically. And so when we go into the next stage, I always say it's, it's kind of the disintegration part. Well, now, now all bets are off. These guys, there is no way they can uh, be copacetic, so now they're going to disintegrate. I know that sounds cryptic, but it wouldn't be Mr. Robot if it wasn't. That's, <laughs> a, that's all I'll say. 
We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Sam. This Guys, is great. Guys, this was awesome. Yeah. This was so much fun. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>